Well, uh, I wonder if this has ever happened to you. Have you ever taken an apple? And it looks really beautiful on the outside. And it's all shiny. And the colors are deep. And it just looks delicious. And you take a bite of that apple. And you see on the inside that there's some insects. Has that ever happened to you? That has happened to me. Uh, I, was, I was living in Austria, and my homestay father, he used to work a lot with farms, and he would bring in lots of apples. And they were so good. But, you know, they listened to Joni Mitchell. Keep the spots off the, you know, keep the spots on the apples, just give me the birds and the bees. Uh, but it also meant sometimes the birds and the bees and the worms and the ants were inside the apple. And when you have a bite of an apple like that, I tell you what, you just, you feel kind of icky afterwards. Like, there's nothing that you can do to really clean that out. You drink lots of water, you brush your teeth several times, and it just, just doesn't go away. Well, I just thought that was an interesting story to tell you before we get into Mark. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, thanks for your word and for your great grace in our lives. We do pray that as we open your word, uh, it would be living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that we would receive it not just as the word of men, but truly what it is, the word of God, and that you would come and be present in all your saving power through the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, here's how we're going to handle this text. This is for all you note takers out there. We're going to look at the problem, the presupposition, the prognosis, and then let me check my notes. The pronouncement. The problem, the presupposition, the prognosis, and the pronouncement. So, first, the problem. When we open this scene, we see that the Pharisees have come with some of the scribes from Jerusalem in verses 1 through 5, and they have a problem with Jesus and his disciples. The problem is that Jesus, or Jesus' disciples, are eating with unwashed, that is, ritually unwashed hands, and they're not following the tradition of the elders. Now, Mark's first century Roman audience is as in the dark about this, apparently, as we are today. And so he gives us an explanation of what goes on here, what's going on. Here's the background. You see, in the Old Testament, there were lots and lots and lots of laws about ritual purity and how to deal with ritual impurity. It was a really big deal. And the... um, The Pharisees, they understood how big a deal this was because Leviticus said that you cannot come into God's presence if you are unclean. And so they created ways, laws, other laws that interpreted the law in order to maintain cleanliness. And the the issue was uh, they wanted God to come and be with them. It's a noble cause. You see, Israel was like a clean room. Some of you work in clean rooms, right? You're scientists. You know what this is like. A clean room is an environment that controls the level of contamination and keeps it very, very low. 
And Israel was supposed to be like a clean room, and so, so God could enter it. But their land was unclean. The people were unclean. And so God's glory had not come back and filled the temple. This is the problem. And this is their problem with Jesus and his disciples. You see, they're the problem because they're eating with unwashed hands. They're eating with unwashed hands, and that means that they are keeping God from returning to his temple. It's a really big deal. Now, this, this controversy, it seems foreign to us, but I would suggest that this, this need to be clean and for ritual clean, cleanliness, it's actually universal. I mean, it's interesting that if you just go across the world religions, you see, uh, you see this, this sense that people feel unclean and they need to be cleansed. Uh, if you go into a Buddhist temple, they have a basin to wash with. In Hinduism, you would swim in the Ganges River before a festival. Or you would also wash the dead in the Ganges River. Uh, if, you are, um, if you look at Native American tribes... They would have a sauna before their ritual festivals. Or they would take a smudge stick to cleanse the area of evil presence and spirits. And Christianity, well, we have baptism. And up until the 4th century, we did that naked. Did you know that? We baptized our converts naked. You say, well... Yeah, but that's religion. I don't really consider myself religious, and that's just what religious people do. But is it really just a religious concern? I mean, think about the way we talk about food and handle food today. You know, uh, 20 years ago, when uh, I was growing up, uh, 20 years ago, we had this sense that, you know, fat was the problem. And so we went on these non-fat kicks. Everything was non-fat. Today, we don't think it's fat so much. We think it's complex carbohydrates. And so we're all going gluten-free. Now, some of you are celiac, and you need to go gluten-free. But what's behind, really behind, the gluten-free craze? Why do we detox? Why do we... Go on juice cleanses. What are we after? I think with all this, what we're really after is we're on a quest. We're on a quest for paradise lost. And we want, we want those identic bodies that we once had. And we think that if we can just eat right... We can come into our full potential selves. Now, listen. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you know, eat well. I'm not saying that eating more non-perishable foods than perishable foods, be, you won't feel better because of that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't exercise. I'm not saying uh, that there are that you shouldn't have a balanced diet and eat your fruits and vegetables. I'm not saying any of that stuff. 
But what I am saying is that your paleo diet and your juice cleanse and all these other things that we go on that's the next latest fad is not going to take you back to the garden. And I think deep down you think it will. And I know that's not popular to say. But I need to say it. Because it is all around. I keep hearing of Christians doing these 30-day whatever. What are we after? What are we looking for? We're looking for the same thing that the Pharisees were looking for. You know, in um, Tennessee Williams' play, Streetcar Named Desire, there's this character named, uh, named Blanche Dubot. And Blanche Dubot is a prim and proper southern belle on the surface. But she has this thing about her. She's always taking baths. And that's the tell. Now, why is she taking these baths? Says so she takes baths to soothe her soul. And then we find out that she's actually lived a rather impure life. And we find that there's something else going on behind these baths. See, she's not trying to cleanse the sweat from her brow in a hot summer southern night. She's trying to cleanse the stain from her soul. But it won't work. Just like our eating clean won't cleanse the stains from our souls. Which brings us to the presupposition. You see, the Pharisees have a presupposition. A presupposition about the scope and the depth and the source of uncleanness. They think that uncleanness is primarily an external problem. And that if they can just stay away, separate from all those unclean things and unclean people and unclean places, then they will be clean. That's what they believed. But Jesus, he challenges this presupposition. He challenges it. By saying, look, your biggest problem is not what's external to you. Your biggest problem is internal. Look at verse 15. He says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then again in verse 18, his disciples don't get it because they're a little thick-headed like we can be sometimes. And so he has to come and explain it to them again. Look at verse 18. Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? And then again in verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. Now, Jesus is challenging their notion of cleanliness. But it's important to note what exactly he is challenging. I don't think Jesus is saying or challenging the notion that things external to you or your environment can defile you. I do not think he's challenging that because there's a swath of Old Testament laws and evidence that all presuppose the fact that external things can defile you. So what is he challenging? He's challenging the notion that if you get rid of all that external stuff, you will be clean. In other words, the reason why ritual cleansing won't clean them is the same reason why if someone soils their self and you throw mud on them, they don't get dirty from the mud because they're already dirty. 
See, that's the problem. And I realize it's a graphic image, but Jesus is using graphic language here. Uh, For the same reason that throwing mud on someone who has soiled themselves does not make them unclean, because they're already unclean to the core, so also ritual help, removing yourself from external things, will not take away the problem because the problem is pervasive. And that's the issue. See, the Pharisees don't see how pervasive the problem is. And I wonder if we do as well. Because don't we set up external laws that keep us away from things, thinking that if we just stay away from those people and those places and those things, then we will be clean. But are we really clean? So they missed the pervasiveness of it. They also missed the source of it. Look in verse 6. Jesus, this is the point of Jesus' reference to Isaiah. He says, This people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus is saying that, that you can clean the outside of the apple all you want, but when you get to the core, there's a worm. There's a worm at the core. And there is a worm at the core. Look at verses 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Covington, uh, Covington, coveting. I've done that before. (laughs) Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Jesus is saying, listen Pharisees, you need to take a long, hard look within. And see where the problem really lies. And he's calling us to take a long, hard look within and see where the problem really lies. He says, you're... Your pressure at work and the late nights and the empty hotel are not what caused you to have that affair. They only drew something out that was latent within you already. Your tight budget did not cause you to lie and steal. They only brought out something that was already latent within you. Your competitor's character did not cause you to slander them but it brought out the insecurity and need for vindication that's already latent within you. And your dorm room, that did not cause you to play video games all night. It only brought out something that was inside your heart already. See, it's not the environment. The environment might affect, might draw out something that's already in, but the problem is still in. And we can separate ourselves or clean the environment all we want, but as much as you want to clean the outside of that apple, wash it, cook it, cut it, it doesn't matter if there's a worm at the core. It's rotten all the way through. I've been listening to David Ramirez's latest album. And in there, he's got this song called A Good Heart. 
And he says, don't say I got a good heart while everything's falling apart. Later on in the course, he says, but I know my part, so don't even start about my good heart. And I love that line because, because he's, he's challenging the ways in which we try to take the responsibility off of ourselves and others. Oh, they got a good heart. It's just their environment. And David Ramirez says, no, it's not just my environment. It is my environment. But it's also something deep within. It's reported that the Times once wrote uh, to a bunch of leading intellectuals and they asked, the London Times, they asked, what is the problem with the world today? And lots of people wrote in, and they all wrote about these environmental problems like um, systemic injustice and lack of education and um, nuclear armament and all these other things. And G.K. Testerton wrote in, and he said, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. I'm the problem. And that is what Jesus is getting us to recognize. Which brings us to the prognosis. See, if there is a worm at the core of the apple, then it doesn't matter how clean and shiny it is. It doesn't matter if you clean it, cook it, cut it. At the end of the day, it's rotten. See, if verses 21 through 23 are true about the condition of humanity, then no amount of external ritual, rule, or recipe can cleanse us and bring the cleansing that we need. And the most graphic story of this, the best illustration of this in the entire Bible, is from our Old Testament reading in Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3, Zechariah, uh, the prophet Zechariah has a vision that vision is of the high priest Joshua in the Holy of Holies inside the temple. Now, I need to set up the scene for you. The Holy of Holies uh, was the innermost part of the temple. It was the place where God's presence met earth. Heaven and earth were there, right above the mercy seat. That was the touch point. And, and the temple had three different courts. There was the outer court commonplace. There was the inner court, the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. And the holy of holies could only be entered one time a year and by the high priest. One time a year on the day of the atonement and by the high priest. And to go into the holy of holies, he needed to go through extensive ritual preparation. It started a week before when he was separated out from everyone, sequestered and put into a room all by himself. There, he was given what food to eat, clean food. And they made sure that no unclean things were in the room so that he might not accidentally eat or touch anything unclean. So we have this seven-day ritual where he is not eating or touching. He is totally by himself, anything unclean. And then we get to the night before where he stays up all night reading scripture and praying to cleanse his soul. The next day, he takes a bath from head to toe. And that wasn't an easy feat in ancient Israel, right? 
water in the desert is not something that is common. So he takes a bath from head to toe and he puts on bright white, pure, clean, new linen vestments, a linen garment. And only then, then and only then, could he enter the most holy place. And he would enter by sacrifice. He would go through this thick veil. And he would have a rope tied to him in case somehow he was unclean. Because if he was unclean, he would die. And he would go into this, behind this thick veil, and he would offer up sins, uh, offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then he would leave. And then he would shower again. And then he would change his clothes. And then he would enter the most holy place again. And then he would offer another sacrifice for the priest. And then he would go out. And then he would enter again. And then he would change his clothes. And he would offer sacrifice uh, for the sins of himself. Three times he had to go, wash, change, enter in. Everything was meticulously done because he not only represented himself, he represented all Israel. And they wanted to be sure that whatever, when he went in there and he represented them, that he was ritually pure, ritually clean. And so then you get this vision of Zechariah who sees Joshua in the most holy place, the holy of holies, and he's standing there before the Lord. And he has unclean garments. And here's the question. How did the high priest make it into the most holy place with unclean garments? Where did the defilement come from? And there's only one answer. It came from within. You see, the word that is used there is a dirty garment, like dirty, like, like Joshua. He soiled himself. And there he is with excrement on his garments before God. And here's the point. No matter what you go through or what you do ritually, you can be as meticulous as you want you still can't fully cleanse yourself because the dirt is pervasive and it comes from within. What Jesus is saying is that the dirt is pervasive and it comes from within. Can a leopard change its spots, the prophet Jeremiah writes, so that people who are accustomed to doing evil are unable, so people who are accustomed to doing evil are unable to do good. What Jeremiah is pointing to, what Jesus is pointing to is this, that our hearts are so off and so defiled that we can have the cleanest environment in the world, but when we walk into it, we still defile everything. Everything becomes, because of our sinful hearts, a little off-kilter, a little defiled. There's a worm at the core. And so, even our religious rituals 
become perverted. That's the example that Jesus, that's what the, that is, uh, that's why Jesus points out this specific example in verses 9 through 13, this example of korban. Korban is when you set something aside and devote it to the Lord. It means to be devoted. And basically what you need to understand about this is that back in their day, you could have this thing like a living trust. And you would devote something, set something aside, investments, money, your house, whatever, to give to the temple for when you died. When you died, it went to the temple. But like a living trust, before you died, you could use it. You could live off the interest. You could live in the house. You could do all those things. So they would devote these things to God. They would set them aside so that God would have them. They were in the living trust. And Jesus says, look, you do that. And it looks very pious. But here's what happens. The Bible also says, honor your father and mother. And that's really clear that the Bible says, honor your father and mother. Yet you say, verses 11 through 13, I got to keep my oath. And because I got to keep my oath, I can't give these things to my father and mother. I can't let them live in my house. I can't give them this money because it's already been vowed to God. And I got to keep my vow because that's also in the Bible. And Jesus says, look... You hypocrites, don't you see that while on the surface it looks very pious what you're doing? Oh no, mom and dad, sorry, can't help you out. I've devoted this stuff to the Lord. Deep down, you're acting in your own self-interest. Your heart has skewed the law. That's the point. So here's the prognosis. The prognosis is this. We are so pervasively unclean and defiled because of our sin that no amount of rite or ritual can cleanse us and make us able to be fit for God's presence. And when we try to add various laws to do that, we are like Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth walking around at night, sleepwalking, washing her hands. You know this, right? She has this dream at night and she is washing her hands because she is racked with guilt from her involvement in the death of King Duncan. And so she is going around at night. She is trying to wash her hands because she sees this blood spot on it. And she says, out, damned spot. But it will never go out. And our damnable spots on our heart, we cannot wash them out. We cannot make ourselves clean. Which brings us back to the Pharisees' question. Why didn't Jesus' disciples follow the traditions of the elders? I mean, was it that they were so cynical and nihilistic about the ability of these rituals that they said, oh, forget it, uncleanliness and cleanliness, it just doesn't matter because we're so unclean, who cares? It doesn't matter. Well, that brings us to the pronouncement. The pronouncement. In verses 18 and 19, 
Jesus notes that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. And then Mark gives us this explanatory statement. Thus he declared all foods clean. He declared. Mark is not saying that Jesus is making commentary on the way things have always been. All things have always been, uh, no food has ever been unclean. He's saying like pork was never really unclean. That just somehow slipped into the Old Testament. That's not the point. No, it's it's a pronouncement. It's a pronouncement like, I now pronounce you husband and wife. When I make that pronouncement, I'm not declaring something that has always been. I'm actually changing the situation, the reality, with the pronouncement. And when Jesus pronounces all food clean, he's saying, there's a new day, there's a new time, there's a new epic going on. All foods are now clean. Now, why would he do that? Is it because he has no regard for the law? I mean, consider this. This is the same person who elsewhere said, I have not come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. What's going on? Well, here's the point. All all those clean laws, all the laws about ritual defilement and such, they they were all supposed to point to this great reality. That because of our sin and because of God's holiness, there is a great chasm that exists between us and God. And that chasm is unable to be crossed. And that chasm breaks our fellowship with God. And that chasm means that we cannot actually exist peacefully in his presence. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to do something that's going to remove that chasm. So that chasm won't exist anymore. So that the clean laws, though they serve their purpose, are no longer necessary. They are fulfilled in me. What's he going to do? Well, that brings us back to that vision that Zechariah had of Joshua and the temple. You see, when Satan accuses Joshua of being defiled, God does two things. First, he says, put some new clothes on him. And he provides Joshua with new clothes. Because he says, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. He says, Joshua, you are a brand plucked from the fire. And I have taken your sin away so that you can stand in my presence. And I'm symbolically clothing you with new clothes so that you might know that. But he doesn't just provide Joshua with clothing. He also provides him with a promise. Did you hear it? He says, listen, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. That is, someone from the line of David. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. How astounding must 
any Israelite, how astounded must any Israelite have been to have heard those words in a single day? All the daily sacrifices that we have done and the weekly sacrifices and the yearly sacrifices, all the ritual purity and purification laws, all that that we have to do over and over and over again so that the priests cannot even sit down, their work is never done, all that, and you're saying that it's going to be removed? We still can't be clean, and you're saying that we're going to be cleansed in one fell swoop in a single day. How would that happen? Well, another Joshua would come. Yeshua. Jesus. It's the same word. It's the same name. And... He would come, and a week before, a week before his death, he would enter a preparation. And the night before, he would not sleep. He would stay up all night praying. And the day of, he would be washed, bathed, not with, not with ritual water, but with spit. And he would offer up a sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own precious blood. And he would take on garments, not clean garments, but the garments of our sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might be clothed with his righteousness so that we might be accepted and acceptable before God, so that he might put on us the robes of his righteousness and that we could stand before him clean. There's this song in one of U2's albums called White as Snow. and says, Once I knew there was a love divine, then came a time I thought it knew me not. Who can forgive forgiveness where forgiveness is not? Once I knew a love divine, once I had a relationship with a divine love with God, but then came a time when it knew me not. That's the story of humanity. They ask, who can, who can gain forgiveness where forgiveness is not? I don't know about you, but there are a lot of things in my heart that it's been hard to forgive. That actually might be one of the hardest, if not the hardest commandment Jesus ever gave. To forgive others. Who can grant forgiveness where there is no forgiveness? And then the line closes. Only the lamb, white as snow. See, it's what Jesus has done and only what Jesus has done which can purify our hearts so that we can stand before him faultless, blameless, and know the presence of his love. May you trust in him. May you look to him and him alone. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.